I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, is following Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? I don't know how that question lands with you this morning. But we're starting a new series uh, today, and it will be a relevant question for us as we move through it. Over the next few weeks, as we approach Easter, we're going to be following a narrative uh, in Matthew's Gospel of the, G- of the journey Jesus took heading to the cross, to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, and then finally to his ascension into heaven. And as we take that journey, it'd be worth us having in mind the words that Jesus spoke earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Is following Jesus worth it? Well, if you look at the passage this morning, we're going to be looking at the disciples, with two in particular for whom this question would need answering would need an immediate answer. Now, no matter how that question lands with you personally, we're going to see why, as well in this passage, it's absolutely worth following Jesus today, and why there is hope for sinful failures like for me and for you. So as we do that, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. And I pray that as we look at it this morning, that you be with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that your word would be like a sword, that it would penetrate to our hearts. Help all of us, I pray, leave this place, change people, because we have sat under your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our passage then, Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem, Uh, right at the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Now we're going to come on to the significance of that timing uh, a bit later. But first, I just want us to place ourselves in how the disciples may be feeling at this exact sort of moment. They've just spent the last three years with Jesus, day in and day out. They've seen Jesus perform the most incredible miracles They've seen lives changed through the most amazing preaching and teaching the world has ever heard. Surely these are the most privileged 12 men who have ever lived. But it's not been all plain sailing. There's already been attempts on Jesus' life. He'd been driven out of towns. He'd already been deserted by many followers because some of his teaching is hard to stomach. He was an overtly hated man and was constantly maliciously pursued by the religious authorities. And needless to say, in the immediate context of our passage this morning, right now there's an active conspiracy in place to murder him. And in recent times, there's been a particular weightiness or heaviness uh, to Jesus' teaching. If you read through uh, chapters 23 to 26, um, you've got some serious material there. You've got the seven woes of the Pharisees. You've got teaching on the end of time. There's an antichrist figure mentioned, and there are terrifying warnings of hell. Jesus has also very recently just spoken about his own burial. Some very solemn teaching. And so you can imagine there's probably a growing sense of unease amongst his disciples. 
it's getting pretty it's getting pretty serious now. What does Jesus mean? Well, here as well in this passage, they're in Jerusalem at Passover. And so it's probably worth saying that Jerusalem would have been a chaotic place at this point. Upwards of three million people would descend on Jerusalem for this festival. You can imagine the heat, the crowds, the dust, the sweat, and a heavy Roman military presence present to keep order. And that would no doubt have fed into that feeling of unease amongst the disciples. Something big was about to happen. And it's true, isn't it? We know that only a matter of hours, their lives are going to be turned completely upside down. Is following Jesus worth it? Well, they were about to be tested. I'm going to make two points this morning. The first one is this. We cannot hide our betrayals from Jesus. We cannot hide our betrayals from Jesus. I remember that I was in year 10 at school, and it was a warm, sunny afternoon. I'd finished school for the day. I just got off the, the 776 bus route, and I'd walked the short journey back to my house. And my parents were still at work, so I let myself in. I went into the kitchen as normal, got myself a, a cup of blackcurrant squash, a few digestive biscuits. I went and sat in the living room. It was a normal day, nothing out of the ordinary at all. I switched on the TV, probably hoping to watch some cartoons or something, and I saw the scene on every channel of two smoking towers in New York. It was, of course, September the 11th, 2001. Those small details of that day are ingrained in my memory. And you will have similar events in your life where you remember exactly what you were doing when you hear some significant news. It could be a world event. It could be something more personal. Um, exam results. An exciting job offer. A relationship breakup. A diagnosis. News of someone's death. Those moments imprint, don't they, on our memory. Well, there are two places in our passage where the words of Jesus would have had that effect on the disciples. If you've got your Bibles open, look with me down to verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Those words would have landed like a sucker punch. Look to verse 20. No, sorry, 22. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. The translation here of the impact that those words would have had does not really do it justice. Matthew uses a phrase which indicates they felt violent emotion or shock. This has come out of nowhere, and it shakes them to their very core. You can just imagine them like falling over each other to say, surely you don't mean me. And it doesn't end there, does it? In 10 verses time, look with me down to verse 31. Jesus says this, Then Jesus told them, that's his disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. And again, that causes indignation. Look at Peter in verse 33. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And again, verse 35. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. A 
and pick up on this, all the other disciples said the same. Such is their self-belief. None of them can accept what Jesus is saying about them. Classically, Peter is particularly gun-ho in his efforts to show how committed to Jesus he is. But he has the strongest pill of all to swallow, doesn't he? Look at verse 34 to Peter. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. After three years, as his constant companions, the disciples find themselves facing the reality that Jesus thinks this very night one of them will betray him and that all the others will deny him and desert him. They cannot believe what they're hearing. And and our passage contains those two bombshells, doesn't it? Betrayal by one, and in the end, total desertion by everyone else. Is following Jesus worth it? By the end of the night, not one of them will look very good answering that question. Now, before we think about what those betrayals might mean for us, let's uh, look a little bit more detail at the first one. So heading back towards uh, verse 20 onwards. I think it's 23. It takes place as they're eating, and they all 11 of them blurt out those words, surely not me, Lord. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. There is little solace for them there because they were all eating with Jesus. All of them were dipping their hand into the bowl with him. They clearly have no idea who Jesus is talking about. Jesus continues in verse 24. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now I think those are some of the hardest words that Jesus spoke about anyone. To hear those words spoken about you by Jesus should cause you to crumple to your knees with guilt and plead for mercy. He's saying that the destiny of this traitor is so awful that it would have been better if they had never been born. This traitor has an eternity of judgment in hell before him because of what he's about to do. It would have been better to have never been born. Verse 25 goes on. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. That question, no doubt, would have been asked out of earshot of the other disciples, perhaps as a whisper. The question rings hollow, doesn't it? Because Judas knows what his plan is, and Jesus knows Judas's heart. Is following Jesus worth it? Judas clearly doesn't think so. Why? Why not? We know at least one reason is is cash. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas is willing to betray the Son of God. It's not in our passage, but in verse 15, just before, his words in verse 15 reveal the wickedness at the heart of man, don't they? 
I'll read them out to you. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me? Now, there are many ways that these betrayals apply to us. One would be to recognize that Judas, by all appearances, was a committed follower and believer in Jesus. No one but Jesus saw this betrayal coming. The disciples clearly had no idea this was coming, and they had spent three years as a constant companion of Judas. It's made most shocking because of Judas's privileged, trusted position as a disciple. He had constant access to Jesus. He was once sent out as one of the twelve to preach and teach and perform miracles in Jesus' name. It's a shocking. But brothers and sisters, it is a it is a warning for us to examine our own hearts. We can hide our hearts from each other, but we cannot hide our hearts or our betrayals from Jesus. The book of Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And so we must pray for the Spirit to be at work in our hearts, convicting us of our sins and drawing us to Jesus. We will see shortly that only in Jesus is there forgiveness and refuge. If you follow David's example, David in Psalm 139 prays these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It should also warn us, I think, about the love of money, shouldn't it? Money is such an intoxicating thing that Judas would betray the very Son of God for just a bit more of it. 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Judas is a sad example of that truth being fulfilled. Jesus says earlier, you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We need to think, where where are our hearts and minds really today? Are they in love with our money, with our possessions, houses, cars, growing a bank balance, the next holiday, meals out, new clothes, new tech. None of those things are wrong in themselves. Money as an object isn't inherently evil. The simple possession in Judas's pocket of 30 pieces of silver wasn't in itself sinful. No, it is, it is the love of money, making money your idol, your number one. For Judas, that money was more important to him than Jesus, and it led him to commit a wicked betrayal. So again, we need to pray for God's help, don't we? To love and serve him and not make money our idol. We need to pray for generous hearts, hearts like that of Jesus, 
Generosity and giving is an antidote to the poison of greed and the love of money. The question for us all is, can we cheerfully, sacrificially, give our money to the Lord's work and go without, deny ourselves for his sake? It's a question for us to consider as we examine our hearts. Finally, on this point, let's think about the wider betrayal of all the disciples. Peter was going to deny Jesus three times before the morning, and all the others will have deserted Jesus out of fear, confusion, and probably self-preservation. It is in a different league, isn't it, to, to Judas's premeditated, calculated betrayal. Events for the disciples will escalate extremely quickly, bewilderingly quickly, uh, and they'd be confused. And Jesus knew that they would fail him. We cannot hide our betrayals from Jesus. And I've come to understand from my own bitter experiences that cowardice runs in the blood of all of us. This morning, have you ever denied Jesus? Perhaps through hiding your faith, keeping quiet about it, or simply running away from situations. Perhaps you've done it more directly through denying or softening the words of Jesus or biblical truth to make them more socially acceptable to avoid embarrassment. We've all betrayed and denied Jesus. Even in my preparation this week, I've been significantly challenged here. I know that temptation to deny Jesus. And Jesus knows how weak we all are. If you know the guilt and the shame of denying and disowning Jesus, then take comfort with me in verse 32. Let's not let this little verse pass us by. Verse 32. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Their betrayal will not be hidden from Jesus. It will be very public. They will weep bitterly because of it. It will eat them up inside. But despite their failure, after he has risen, Jesus has a plan for them in Galilee. He will go ahead of them. And brothers and sisters, Jesus goes ahead of us as well. No matter what your failure or your sin, if you are willing to follow him, then Jesus is willing to lead you and go ahead of you. He has a plan for you and he will walk with you in it. So that was our first point. We cannot hide our betrayals from Jesus. Just secondly today, we, cannot, we can only find forgiveness in the body and blood of Jesus. We can only find forgiveness in the body and blood of Jesus. During the half term this week, uh, we've been looking after our neighbor's Labrador called Patch um, while they were on a holiday. Now I've been thinking about uh, getting a dog for some time um, I grew up with a dog. Uh, the girls, they love dogs. And uh, owning a dog is a lovely image to have in my mind. Uh, but, but it struck me pretty quickly, the reality of having a dog is quite different perhaps to the image. The actual day-to-day -day reality changes everything about your routine. It completely dictates the way you plan your day. It's not dissimilar to becoming a new parent. And it sort of reminded me of that. Um, it, it's that sort of from now on, 
we're going to do things this way. So from now on, I need to stand outside a couple of times a day in the rain to watch him go to the toilet and then pick it up. You know, that, that sort of change of life. Um, and that from now on principle is where uh, we have what we have here in the middle section, that change. Jesus is about to make a significant change to how his people understood scripture and how they should therefore act from now on. Let's take a look at our context in verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. This was a hugely important moment in the Jewish calendar. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were instituted by God in Exodus 12. It was a time to remember the people of Israel's redemption and their rescue from slavery in Egypt. It was essentially a week where you were not to do any ordinary work except for preparing food to be eaten. And in that time, they weren't to use any leaven or yeast in their preparation. And that was to help remind them of the speed at which they needed to bake their bread in Egypt to get away and move quickly. And the week would start with the Passover meal. And so understanding the Passover meal is crucial here. So very briefly, if you remember on that day of rescue from Egypt, each Israelite family would slaughter a lamb without blemish and they would spread its blood on the door frames of their dwelling. And then they were commanded to roast the lamb and eat it quickly with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And that was crucial they did that because God was coming that very night to deliver a final devastating plague on the land of Egypt. That night, God would come and put to death the firstborn of all people across the entire land. The only escape from death was whether you had obeyed him and spread that blood of the lamb across the doorframe of your dwelling. God would come in that plague and he would pass over that house when he saw the blood and no one would die. And if you remember, it was that final plague that broke Pharaoh's resolve and he let the people of Israel go. They were delivered from their slavery. And so every year since then, the people of Israel remember that great rescue with the Passover. Now, without going into any detail here about the Jewish calendar, and there, this is an issue that scholars do debate, it does appear that Jesus and his disciples were remembering the Passover a day earlier than was traditional. This is an important detail for a couple of reasons. For one, it would mean there was no lamb at this meal because these needed to be ritually sacrificed in the temple the following day. The lamb was a key component of the meal and there is no mention of it here or in the other gospels. The significance of this is that Jesus himself was and is the Passover lamb. The first lambs sacrificed in Egypt every year since their rescue 
were always only ever pointing forwards to Jesus and a future new redemption from slavery, slavery to sin. Remember that when John the Baptist saw Jesus at his baptism, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he will be sacrificed at Passover. That wasn't the only deviation from tradition. Look with me down to verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink with it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover ritual would normally have had traditional words spoken at it to explain the significance of the food that they were eating. And it would have all related to to their deliverance from Egypt. But in verse 26 to 29, Jesus provides a new interpretation which relates to a new and greater deliverance. And his words are packed full of Old Testament significance and fulfillment. Now there are great depths to be mined here in these words, far more than we have time for today. But very briefly, from now on, God's people are to use this meal to remember Jesus' sacrifice. The bread represents his broken body, his violent death, and the wine, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is deliberate Old Testament sacrificial language that Jesus uses here. He refers to the blood of the covenant, if you notice that, the covenant, which is a word that again takes us back to Egypt, chapter 24 where God confirms his relationship, his promise, his covenant with his people by shedding and sprinkling of blood. These words are also a fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a prophecy that speaks of a day when because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God will make a new covenant with his people. I'm not going to read you the whole prophecy. I'll read you some phrases from it. So Jeremiah 31, it says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. And so the significance of Jesus' words at this meal in verses 26 to 29 cannot be overstated. He is founding or instituting the new relationship with God that a prophet looked forward to. This new community of the covenant will partake of this meal, as we will later, yes, to remember Jesus, but also to identify with the benefits of that sacrificial death of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, there is so much more uh, that could be said here. Um, but in light of this truth, I just wanted to finish by asking the question I asked at the start. Is following Jesus worth it? It might be this morning that in life you're looking for, for money, for power, influence, popularity, and a comfortable life in this world. Remember, Judas was looking for those things, and he was clearly disappointed that he wasn't finding them in Jesus, and you weren't either. Jesus calls those to follow him who know they are sick, who know they are broken, lost, and sinful. They know they desperately need a saviour. He calls those who know they've betrayed him, who carry that guilt and that shame. If you know you're a sinner this morning, then look no further than the body and blood of Jesus Christ. His body has been broken and his blood has been shed to take the punishment that we deserve for the sins that we have committed. He brings us a hope of everlasting life with him forever. So if you haven't done so yet, then call on Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins and claim that promise in verse 29. And with these words, I will finish. Verse 29, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'll pray to finish. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of the words of Jesus. Thank you that his body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Please help us to be a people that, that love that truth and live by it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.